0: Desiree Berg, and welcome
1: to The 34th. Los Angeles, it is the country's largest jail system, but the feds say the inmates were not the only criminals there. Several former and current deputies with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department were just arrested as part of a major sting that targeted everything from corruption to inmate abuse. Among the allegations, deputies and high-ranking officials in the jail went out of their way to try and hide an FBI informant. This informant was apparently providing agents with the names of corrupt deputies. And the informant used a cell phone to take pictures of inmate abuse.
2: I'm Sarah Hashemaris in the Los Angeles Times Newsroom. More than a dozen current and former Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies were arrested by the FBI or were expected to surrender to investigators as part of a two-year-long probe into alleged inmate abuse and misconduct inside county jails. The cases allegedly involve use of excessive force, obstruction of justice, and improperly arresting and searching the jail's visitors, according to an indictment. The Times reports that at least three people, including a lieutenant, a sergeant, and a a deputy were taken into the FBI's custody as part of a federal obstruction of justice probe into how sheriff's officials handled an FBI informant at the center of the jail investigation. The informant, Anthony Brown, told The Times that FBI agents regularly visited him in jail and he gave them names of abusive deputies. Brown said once his cover was blown, he was moved at the jail, had his name changed in the prison system, and was interrogated by deputies on whether he planned to testify in court.
1: Another jail scandal for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Yeah, a deputy has been arrested for raping two female inmates. And CBS News' Dave Lopez is live at the jail in Lynwood with how Sheriff McDonald is handling it. Dave,
3: well, it was a very stern uh, sheriff today, uh, Jim McDonald, as he announced uh, the arrest today. Behind me is the entrance for this facility, exclusively for women here in the city of Lynwood, the county jail facility. <laughs>
0: Alex Villanueva, who is running for L.A. County Sheriff. Hi, Alex. Welcome.
4: Well, hi there. Thank you.
0: So I want initially I want to talk to you about your early career in reform started off by getting smoking banned in jails. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went down, what your motivation was and um, how it all worked out in the end?
4: Well, it became a, a necessity. I was working in the county jail. This is in the late 80s. had been on for about two years. And um,
0: uh-huh.
4: back in the late 80s, smoking was allowed in the jail. So inmates would light up sometimes an <laughs> entire cell, everyone smoking. But the air quality was horrific. You couldn't even mm-hmm. see down a hallway because of the cloud of smoke that hung over uh, the air. Wow. So... Um, A lot of my friends, myself, we were getting bronchitis, upper respiratory uh, infection, so we said, I I thought to myself, this doesn't need to be, there's got to be a better way. So I did some homework to see if other jail systems had banned smoking. I found a few that had, I believe it was San Diego County and Kings County at the time. And uh, they caught my attention because they're, the San Diego one at least, is a fairly large jail facility. It's not small. So I figured, well, if they can do it, why can't we do it? And by this point in time, the secondhand smoke, uh, the body of study is starting to come out from the American Heart and Lung Association, the Cancer Society, all these different groups are saying that secondhand smoke is bad. But the policy side of the house hadn't really caught up to it yet. So I raised a question to my, uh, I did a survey of employees where I worked, and i got 300 people that signed it was like overwhelming oh yeah let's get rid of this crap Mm -hmm. and then i took it to my lieutenant he said oh that sounds like an interesting idea why don't you take it to the captain so i took it to the captain he said that's a pretty good idea let's let's run with it now why don't you run it up the flagpole and see how the commanders and above the executives like it so i took it to the commander and uh he read through. He said, "Well, this looks interesting." And then he gave me the runaround. "Well, son, you did a good job here, but maybe in five or ten years, you know, it'll be a right time to address this." And I told him, uh, "Sir, the problem is now, not five or ten years from now. Don't you care about, you know, the the welfare of your employees?" And right. He, this guy, he got beat red right in the face. I remember the the. <laughs> popping out of his neck. How dare you suggest <laughs> I don't care about my employees and he Get out of my office. So he threw me out of, out of his office. And I thought to myself when I left I said, you know what? Uh, he's wrong. This is a this mm-hmm. is a current problem. It needs to be addressed. At this point, it's about three weeks into the process of so the unions got involved, A Labs, because they got wind of the survey results. So they took it to the sheriff and then A few weeks later, we're sitting at uh, the union hall, and in comes the sheriff and uh, Mm the union leaders and this commander. He shakes my hand and says, son, it's all about timing. (laughs) He had kind of a sheepish grin on his face. So I said, uh, hey, as long as uh, we we fix it, that'll work out for everyone. And that uh, led to uh, I wrote the policy for the entire division, and we did a test facility where I worked. And then we got an implementation plan going, and within I think a year and a half, the entire system was smoke-free.
0: Right. No, I mean that was the late '80s. I know you know a lot of bars and restaurants at the time were still allowing smoking. It wasn't. It hadn't really infiltrated the culture yet. So I I would say that was a big task, um, and it was great that you were successful in it. Now you also brought up the union situation. Were you not also part of a forming a new union for the sheriff? was there actually,
4: actually I was a I was a uh active member of ALADS which is the certified bargaining union and okay. in 1999 uh all ALADS members were unhappy with the ALADS leadership because they had endorsed Sherman Block for re-election when the right. membership was about 80% against it because mm-hmm. we were having a lot of problems with the Sherman Block at the time mm-hmm. and uh so I went to a union to to Union Hall and I started asking questions, okay, why are you guys voting against us and what are you doing with our dues? Because there was a lot of rumors about how our union dues were being miss- misspent. And the answer I got is it's none of your business.
0: What? Literally. Wow.
4: That was the answer. Wow. I had, it's none of your business. And I said, oh, ho, ho, wait, 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 wait. that's my money. That's all of our <laughs> money. What do you mean? So, uh. Uh, A group of friends, myself and a group of us decided, well, let's uh, become ALADS unit reps and then let's get involved in the leadership of the union. So we launched a recall drive against the entire board of directors of ALADS. Mm. We gathered over 2,000 signatures. We served them to the ALADS uh, directors and they just kind of looked at it and said, so what? and uh within i think a, a week or two they served us a notice that we were now suspended indefinitely from the union
0: <laughs> oh my god
4: and uh so in my line of work you need uh, legal representation cuz you know it's a hazard of the job it there's a lot of risks involved we organized and we formed our own uh, separate association we called it the Los Angeles Sheriff Professional Association <clears throat> We got uh, good attorneys involved, we got a legal insurance plan, and we set out to then uh, represent the people that agreed with us. And a Mm -hmm. lot of people left ALADS at the time, and then all of a sudden the county decided uh, it's time to strike back, because they liked having an employer-dominated union, like ALADS.
0: Right, right. It was
4: inconvenient to have an upstart union that was going to actually challenge them. So all of a sudden, we were shut out of all the facilities. We were denied access everywhere, and they made every hurdle possible that they could throw in front of us, they didn't. But we had enough momentum to get a payroll deduction code and to get more uh, more uh deputies to sign up. And ultimately, um, I served the first two years, because the terms in office for two years, and then by this point, I had promoted a sergeant, so I left it in other hands, new generation of leaders. And when I left, the last thing I did is I told Elias and Popa, the other union, they're kind of rivals among themselves. They represent sergeants and lieutenants. That you guys need to get your act together and form one union, just like LAPD's uh, Police Protective League. And you're more effective at bargaining. You have a stronger right. uh, stronger hand to play. And you need to get involved in county election processes. You can't be sitting, you know, like a doormat because right. that's a position of weakness to negotiate from. And they both told me to pound Sam.
0: <laughs> of course.
4: And uh, the agency shop thing had started about, I think, six months earlier. So that mm. pretty much stalled the growth of LASPA, But it, it, it served the function at the time. Twenty years later, mm-hmm. ALAS is now enacting all the reforms that we were demanding of them in nineteen ninety nine. Funny how life goes full circle.
0: So now are both unions still functioning or no?
4: Yeah, ALAS and POPA, they're the certified bargaining unions. They're uh they're facing a major issue with the Supreme Court decision on agency shop. Yeah. If uh, what is
0: that what does that involve?
4: Well, agency shop is basically uh it compels a uh, public employees to join a union if they're represented by a a bargaining union. So if the conservative uh, Supreme Court rules against it, that means any union member can just say, I don't want to be a member of your union anymore.
0: Right, right.
4: So that will have a major ripple effect throughout all organized labor, at least in the public sector.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, they're working on a federal right to work law as well in the Congress. So we're facing... um, Union destruction on both sides, but what's frustrating to me because I'm also a union member is sometimes you get this really corrupt leadership in place that is, as you said, pro-employer, and they're really not servicing uh, their membership at that point. So we have um, we have to contend with that if we want to keep unions.
4: That that was a win. It was a learning experience, and I had a death threat against me. I had oh no. When we were at the union hall, and it was a big uh, big shouting match, and we were trying to get mm-hmm. the 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 recall um, served. He put his hands mm-hmm. on my shoulder and said, "Oh, we got you now, buddy." Basically, mm-hmm. threatening my entire career. That that's how corrupt these people were back in those days.
0: Oh, no doubt. Uh, Sherman Block was definitely not not a good guy. Um, you know. Now, then you go forward to Lee Baca and Paul Tanaka. They were both um, jailed for corruption charges and for obstruction well, of justice, which was.
4: Well, it turns out hindsight is twenty twenty. The devil we knew turned out to be, would have been better than the one we didn't know. Yeah. Because that was Baca. Yeah.
0: It really, that's true. <laughs> uh, so, were you retaliated against then from that point on in your career for oh, it, like, taking this massively. On as an issue?
4: Well, I was blackballed. Um, I had a spotless career as a deputy. And I went to the academy as a staff instructor, which is always considered a stepping stone for career advancement. Mm -hmm. I got promoted to sergeant. I was like on the tail end of a group of 400 that were promoted to sergeant. Okay. And I was one of the last ones out of the academy. So they virtually promoted everyone until the very last ones out the door was me, (sighs) even though I was a lot more senior. and. And time and all that I'm
0: more qualified, yeah,
4: than other people, but you know that's the game they played, that's fine, but unfortunately, that continued when I was a sergeant.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I did a you know I had outstanding evaluations, I had obviously educated, I had experience, and mm-hmm. I was passed over for job after job as a sergeant took the lieutenant's mm. exam and this at this point when I took the lieutenant's exam, by this point Paul Tanaka had his fingers in the entire promotional process. Right. And I had already been on record advocating for the equal treatment of all employees and I noticed there was a huge disparity in minority under-representation and throughout the rank mm-hmm. structure and I made it a mm-hmm. point and I raised that with executives and ooh, that, that was like Oliver Twist and asking for another bowl of porridge.
0: <laughs> Which is absolutely crazy to me because it, it would seem to me that having diversity among the force would actually help with a lot of the other problems they're experiencing.
4: It would, but of- the diversity for them meant loss of privilege. Right. They were not competing with just their friends for jobs going up the food chain. They had to compete with the entire organization. Mhm. They didn't want that.
0: They didn't want that. Um, now, no. you briefly mentioned your education. I know you have a doctoral degree. Your dissertation was actually on this subject, on diversity in law enforcement. Tell us a bit yes. about the arguments that you make in your dissertation and then a little bit about how you could apply them to your job if you win uh, the, the election.
4: Well, I um, I did a, uh, a survey. I, I identified the largest law enforcement agencies in the country, state and local, and I think I identified 25 of them, the top 25. And I sent a letter to the the HR department of every agency asking for the demographics of their entire organization, their rank structure, and the manner in which they promote people from rank to rank. And I got 10 responses. So, of course, that formed the data base for my dissertation. And I was looking forward to see what, what was uh, What were the commonalities, what were the trends, and the manners in which different agencies promoted their personnel and how they impacted the diversity. And there's a concept called representative bureaucracy. It's an academic term, and it's not in the lingo and in, in the public at large, but a representative bureaucracy is one that represents or reflects the community within which it serves. It looks like the community, in other words. And it turns right. out and I, I created a typology to rank organizations on their diversity efforts, kind of like mm-hmm. a, a scorecard. Yeah. And the, the the top score was uh, one that was a representative bureaucracy. Then the second was uh, non-representative but uh, improving, in other words, working towards it. Then the third was non-representative and static, which meant, uh, well, progressive was the second score, progressive. The third was static, which meant every effort, they were not doing anything to change the diversity of the organization. It just happened because more people were applying it, the diversity of the bottom end of the organization is changing. So gradually over time, it changes. That was a static. That's like a C grade. Then the F grade was a non-representative regressive bureaucracy, Mm. and that's one that is deliberately trying to prevent the organization from becoming more diverse. And the L.A. County Sheriff's Department fell in that last grade. Hmm. They were actively trying to prevent, they were using a quota system. Hmm. So they they were reserving the majority of their promotions to every rank, to the political status quo. And then basically everybody else was on the outside looking in because they were not even participating. So it was a very exclusive (laughs) process.
0: Right, right. And
4: then here's the scary part. To this day, it still remains exactly that way. It has not changed. Yeah, at that's all. a
0: little bit scary to me because it's just making all the problems we face worse. I think you're correct on that. Kind of qualify you as a Bernie crap. Really need to have folks in law enforcement um, taking up this mantle, in my opinion. So, what what would you do? So, if you win and you're looking at ways to reform this this uh privileged status quo what would you do to do that what does that look like
4: well you, we have to convert a corrupt uh political spoil system or patronage system we have to actually create a merit-based civil service system it's funny mm-hmm. how actually honoring and following the law is a path forward yep. and when That's you're the irony yeah, it's the yeah, when you have all the power and all the control, and you can do whatever you want, and there's very little oversight of what you do, well, then guess what? Bad things happen, which has been right. the story of the last 20 years of the Sheriff's Department. Because the employees yeah. know if you speak out, and I am probably that canary in the coal mine, or the maybe the the decapitated <laughs> head on the pike at the gates of the city, yeah. don't do what he did.
0: No, and bless you for that. We need more guys like you. Um, so in 2016, Lee Baca pled guilty to lying about, an uh, there was an inmate abuse scandal that was going on, but apparently he pled guilty to lying to the FBI to try to conceal it. And then I believe some of the other sheriffs had actually threatened the special agent that was assigned to investigate the situation, and he tried to cover that up.
1: Los Angeles, it is the country's largest jail system, but the feds say the inmates, We're not the only criminals there. Several former and current deputies with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department were just arrested as part of a major sting that targeted everything from corruption to inmate abuse. Among the allegations, deputies and high-ranking officials in the jail went out of their way to try and hide an FBI informant. This informant was apparently providing agents with the names of corrupt deputies, and the informant used a cell phone to take pictures of inmate abuse. The FBI will shed more light on what they uncovered during a news conference.
0: Um, And I believe also Paul Tanaka was involved and convicted uh, for obstruction of justice or something like this. Uh, You you were in the department at that time. So from your point of view, watching this happen in real time, were a lot of you folks aware of the uh, inmate abuse scandal? And why was it uh, so bad, A, and, and then covered up the way it was? How did these guys get away with this?
4: Well, the problem is unless you're actually at the facility where the things happen, yeah, you don't hear about it in other, organi- in other units on the department unless it's something oh, so I egregious see. that it really, people are talking about it. So the routine okay. uses of force or things or maybe or serious uses of force, but nothing of no one died behind it or something like that, mm-hmm. they're easy to get. Pretty much buried and placed into little, you know, little dark corners mm-hmm. of the organization and never really addressed. And that's what was going on with uh, the climate, the organ, the culture of the of that institution at Central Jail. You had bad supervision. Right. You had a, a leader who was encouraging them to work in the gray area, Paul Tanaka.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And you removed all the effective oversight and uh, counter, uh, basically counterpoints. So all you have left are a bunch of yes men, and they're going right. to tow the company line, which was work the gray area and do what you need to. And you lost that total accountability in that system.
0: What is inside Paul Tanaka's personality that would sort of drive him to think that this was the right way to handle things? I mean, it seems – look, we understand that a lot of these folks aren't indeed guilty of some heinous crimes, but at the same time, abusing prisoners – or engaging in some of the stuff that was going on is clearly crossing a line. And it seems to me that it's um, a sort of personality that gravitates toward that sort of behavior. Is there a way to prevent guys like that getting into places of power so that that well, doesn't keep happening over and over again?
4: You know, sadly, is if you look at Paul Tanaka's career early on, he showed yeah. flashes of what he was all about. If it, he didn't Absolutely. all of a sudden pop up overnight. Early on when he was in fact that infamous shooting that he was involved in in linwood yeah he he was already a sergeant at the time, and if you look at his mm-hmm. course his conduct in that and what was alleged to have occurred, you realize he wasn't a sergeant, he was someone who's trying to earn his his street creds among his peer mm-hmm. group
0: I and think, then yeah.
4: hes he constantly strove throughout his career to demonstrate that he had, he had power and he had control and leverage over people and he carried that on in every single rank. And then every new rank just gave him more ammunition and more wind in his sails to keep doing what he was doing. And he mm-hmm. found the perfect sheriff to basically coddle his way up through the ranks.
0: Right. Right. Because Lee Bacca obviously had some of the same sort of tendencies. So, uh, would you say that this particular situation and others like it are a problem of corrupt leadership versus a cultural problem within the entire department?
4: It's uh a little bit of both. you okay. got the the cult of the personality of the individual
0: mm-hmm.
4: and throughout my time in the department, now that I've been in in a leadership position and in every role I've played as a supervisor. And I hear people say, oh, I work for this person, I work for that person. And people say, oh, I work for Paul Tanaka or whoever. Mm. I made it a point to tell them, you do not work for anybody. You work for the public. Keep that in mind. Right. You work exactly. to advance the public's interest when you take an oath of office. That is to the Constitution of the United States and the state of California. Your oath is to the people. It's not to mm-hmm. a person. Don't ever forget that. And when I was at the academy, right. I taught that as a deputy I taught that as a sergeant, and I volunteered as a lieutenant to teach professionalism, ethics, and leadership to the recruits mm-hmm. on day one. And I'd hammer that theme home to them: You will never work for any individual. You work for the people. And right. that idea is lost because I still hear it now and then. Oh, I'm going to go over here to work for this person. I'm going to go over there to work for that person. And they just don't mm-hmm. get it.
0: They don't get it. Yeah, because they've sort of been ingrained in the system for so many years now.
4: It's an effective way to advance your self-interest. You go work for this person, right. they puncture your ticket, and then you get gather up all your tickets, and then you move up the food chain, and then you're going to support other people. They're going to go basically kiss your ass and work for you, and it's a mm-hmm. per- self-perpetuating system.
0: It is. Now, when was you mentioned a, a little data uh, item to me that I thought was really fascinating when we first talked, and that was that there hasn't been a Democrat running for the sheriff. Uh, for what, a hundred years or so? Uh,
4: the last Democrat who was elected sheriff was William Rowland, and the year was
0: 1880. That's, that's like that's amazing to me because that's over a hundred years.
4: Um. Yeah. Well, uh, sometime at the end of the the 1800s, early 1900s, they they made the position officially nonpartisan.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: But the underlying theme was the same crowd, and it kept going the same way. That's why you had, from uh, after Roland, you had, uh, who was it? Well, you had Hamill, you had Traeger, you had even Martín Aguirre, who was the last Spanish-speaking sheriff. He was also Republican. Right. Then you had the ones, you know, Klein and White, turn-of-the-century ones, and then from Traeger, then you got Biskalup, Pitches, Block, Baca, who was Republican. Scott, who was Republican, and then McDonald himself, his entire professional career, he was Republican until he became the number two guy at LAPD. Then he switched <laughs> to decline to state. Who is he? Who
0: yeah, is he which leads me. Yeah, who is he pulling exactly? He's still a Republican. So it's this whole idea that, that law and order has become sort of the domain of the Republicans for a reason I'm not sure on. And then we also saw a shift in the 80s where even the Democrats were taking up this mantle soft on crime. And I feel that it's led to a sort of place we're at now, where what are we jailing? Like 25% of our population in the state of California, we have a higher we have a higher rate of, of folks in jail than they do in China. That's that's a crazy piece of data right there. So I feel like we've gone out of our way to um, criminalize things that could be dealt with in other ways, whether it's smoking pot or you know you can go to nonviolent offenses, so to speak. When did that cultural shift actually happen was it Was it at the turn of the century, or has that been just a gradual thing that's gone on through the decades till we've reached this point?
4: It was kind of a gradual increase, but it accelerated in the eighties okay. when politicians unfortunately from both parties were tripping over themselves to prove who was the toughest on crime yeah. and <laughs> and literally that's how you got the three strikes law that's how you had all these right. all these uh toughening of the of the for 187s, for homicides, all the different special circumstances that make people eligible for the death penalty, all these things that were, and then on the the sex crimes, everything was lock them up, throw away the key, lock them up, throw away the key, but people Mm -hmm. never stopped to say, okay, at some point, the bill's going to come due.
0: It came due with a vengeance,
4: and that's where the federal judge intervened and said, uh, your entire uh, system is
0: unconstitutional. That's right, and you know I don't know how many people realize this, but yeah, Skoda basically stepped in and said that what we were doing was cruel and unusual punishment, and that we needed to stop locking up nonviolent offenders. And then what really blew my mind is Kamala Harris's office actually went to court to argue against this because she said it would um, threaten a labor pool that we were using. Which I, I, I to this day I can't get past that. To me, this is such an immoral argument to make. You're basically saying that. Prisoners that are serving life sentences for smoking pot are part of your labor pool because you're paying them six cents an hour. This is like, what on earth is going on here? Uh, That's a little
4: bizarre. Although the although some information though, remember, no one's serving time for smoking pot anymore. That might have been true right, in so the 70s. Right. So they changed
0: that now. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Now, because of the AB 109 prison realignment, you got uh, Prop 47, Prop 57.
0: Right.
5: I recently heard the story of a woman named Jill Jenkins. For years, Jill struggled with drug addiction. One day, she was arrested for stealing a sandwich and charged with a felony. Now that felony charge haunted her long after she completed drug treatment and got her college degree. Old felonies, even for low-level offenses like drug possession and shoplifting, can create barriers to jobs, housing, education, and more. Now, Prop 47 is already working to cut out those barriers by reducing and removing felonies from criminal records. Jill took advantage of Prop 47 and wiped that felony from her record. I believe in Prop 47 because I believe we are not the sum of the worst thing we have ever done. We need to start opening doors of opportunity for people who want to rebuild their lives. Over 1 million Californians may be eligible to remove low-level felonies from their criminal records. If you or someone you know has a low-level felony on their record, visit MyProp47.org to learn more.
4: And just actually, even before all that, just the sheer overcrowding, for example, in the LA County Jail system, mm-hmm. people were serving 10% of their sentence when they were sentenced to the county jail. So very few people were being in there. You have all the pre uh the pre, uh, pre-sentence pre people going through the trials, you know, and they could right. be in for for murder, uh, robbery, all the, you know, the serious violent crimes. They're going to be part of the inmate population. Then you had a smaller segment that are the sentence people for misdemeanors. But now mm-hmm. after AB-109, that whole thing disappeared. Now we're like an extension and what of year, state prison. what year
0: was that passed?
4: What oh, AB-109, I want to say, was passed in 2011 or 2012. Uh, diverted
6: felons and... What's your response to that? Well, uh, Dan, I'm glad you raised that. That reinforces our argument to remove the prison cap, to not release any more serious uh, felons out of our state prison, other than those that are required under existing law. So that makes that point. In terms of realignment, uh, I I reject the notion that uh, this is contributing to anything but the public interest. Uh, People commit crimes in the local community. And they are now, to a greater degree, being supervised, uh, being rehabilitated, or being incarcerated locally. We're transferring billions of dollars to achieve that goal. I think it's very sound, and there we are. We have some people who say there are not enough dangerous felons on the street. We have another group who says, wait a minute, uh, stop, we've got too many. I think we've hit the right balance. And I will continue uh, pushing that objective because we have to bring down our prison spending, uh, our correctional costs, as we invest more money in our schools and our education, as voted uh, in Proposition 3. Governor, are you saying that?
4: Right about there. Because I was a new lieutenant at Century Regional Detention Facility at the time, so we were addressing the implementation of it.
0: So, is there any um, legacy sentences left from that? period of time that have not been dealt with currently now in 2018 or is that pretty much oh they're gone straight yeah out? okay so yeah that, they're I all gone
4: care- the whole character of the population has been transformed ever since a B-109 okay.
0: okay so that was a step in the right direction and then I think the other big problem we face and I'd love to hear your opinion on it is the money bail system I know uh we have a lot of folks that are sitting there because they can't post bail. They're too poor to post bail. And some of them might be entirely innocent. Of, what do we do about that? This doesn't seem right to me, especially if they have a backlog in getting things to trial.
4: Well, that's, that's a tough one because the cash bail system, we've had it since, what, the 1800s, literally?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a long a, time. It's a
4: very old system. It does have a very negative impact, obviously, if you're at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Because yeah. you miss out on work because you're in jail. Guess what? Now you don't. And so you, you had a job, a job on top of it. Yeah, you lost a job exactly. And uh, where someone who is, has economic means, maybe committed the exact same crime, but they have the funds to post the bail, keep their job, and then go through the right. criminal justice system as a um, you know on their own recognizance or a bail release. So that disparity right. is is problematic. How to address it is mm-hmm. a tough one. But um, I know yeah. there's a process going through right now. I just read about uh, through the DA's office, I believe. They're looking at mm-hmm. a, two, a two-phase process. Yeah, oh, roadmap sorry. for bail reform. Uh, Witness LA actually had an interesting report on it. Okay, here, phase one, which start. oh, it already started, actually. Okay. County council has convened a steering committee to choose a risk, assess- a risk assessment tool and means of using and validating the tool as well as identifying resource and training requirements for the tool of choice. Okay, and then when oh, okay. they're done, at the June 1st, in June when they're done, they have to go back to the Board of Supervisors and give them prog- an update on the progress. Okay. So then, basically, they're going to replace the cash bail system with a risk assessment tool. that will say, okay, this hmm. person is a threat to the community. If we release them, let's keep them in custody. The other person, no, is stable. It's a calculator risk that we can take, let them Mm -hmm. release.
0: That makes more sense to me. I know, uh, you know, we're not as bad off as like, say, New York is, because I know they've actually had folks die waiting to go on trial that couldn't post uh, bail at Rikers. How much do you think money in politics influences a lot of these decisions? I know private prisons have higher rate of incarceration because it's been incentivized. Um, Do you think that that's the case?
4: Well, in California, we don't have, at least not in L.A. County around here, we don't have that uh, degree of a uh, private prison that's kind of lost. It had some steam going on in the 90s, but uh, right. it kind of lost steam over here. But in other states, I believe that's still going strong. It is, yeah. And, um, yeah. But there's a lot of, because of the competition, and you have the employees of publicly run jails and their unions that are pretty Well, adept at uh, lobbying Sacramento to put roadblocks for private prison construction, and I have my doubts about private prison because of the whole profit motive and the quality of care that would be provided, and they still have to make a profit margin. That means they're cutting some corners somewhere.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a believer of public goods. I think certain things are better handled by the government simply because they shouldn't be for profit. And and this is one of them. Private prisons, I believe that about health care and public safety. I mean, I don't understand why we've gotten to this sort of uh, belief in the country that everything needs to be privatized and for profit. It's kind of run amok at a certain level.
4: Well, the people that are always pushing the for profit always try to downplay Their their cost overhead, you know their administrative, their bureaucracy, and pretend like magically, oh, we do away do away with all that, we can turn out a better product. No, they still have to deal with the same um, overhead costs and a profit margin on top of that. Exactly. Some things, like you said, make sense. For example, trash collection.
0: Well, let's actually let's talk a little bit about Jim McDonald, who's the gentleman you're running against. As far as policy and platform are concerned, what are your main differences with McDonald?
4: Well, for starters, he has no idea what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> he took over an organization desperate need of reform and decided that he was just not going to reform it. I right it boggles the mind how he came to that that decision. But remember, I said we need to convert a political spoil system into a civil service system based on merit? Right. We need to reorient our entire workforce away from self-service and towards public service. And we need to incentivize public service. Right now, there is no incentive for public service. Lee Baca himself told me when I was a sergeant that I need to get out of patrol as soon as I can.
0: Mm. And I
4: thought that was the most Ask backward a comment.
0: I agree, yeah. It's like, wait a minute, that is
4: the most important thing we do is serve the community. You tell me I need to abandon that as soon as I can for my own self-interest?
0: What was his logic for that?
4: Because he was basing it on the culture of the organization and the prevailing practices that you want to do as little time as possible in the line assignments so you get to a... Mm -hmm. A staff assignment or an aide or an operations job here or there and a special specialty assignment out of the line right. staff. And then all of a sudden your career flourishes, so you're incentivized by not staying, spending time serving the community. I'm going to turn the hmm. entire pyramid upside down. I'm going to place the value, the worth of all of my employees based on how well and how long they've served the community. So, literally, mm-hmm. this is turning the pyramid upside down. And Which some needs people, to happen.
0: I think that's great.
4: Oh, it needs to happen because for so many different reasons. One of them is we can't in, uh, implement community policing effectively throughout the county if we have a fly-by-night operation where everybody keeps changing, every president keeps changing hands every six months or a year. Right. It doesn't work. Right. You have to build long-term relationships, steady relationships. You have to promote stability mm-hmm in your law enforcement agencies, your patrol stations. And then the community reacts to that, and now we're starting to working with people we know each other on a first-name basis. The deputies out there in patrol recognize who the the problem people are within the within The community Community recognizes who the deputies are, and they say, Hey, you know what? I know him. I can trust him. I've dealt with him before. He or she is a fair player. And that's how we start building that, that level of trust that, unfortunately, in some places doesn't exist.
0: Right. But I think being able to trust the trust build up between the community and the police officers is the main thing we should be working on. So what is uh what is your opinion on the militarization of our police forces here in the United States? We we now see sometimes at protests, these guys literally standing there on the street and you're thinking to yourself, Is this Iraq? <laughs> what am I looking at here? When did we when did we start migrating towards that and away from community policing?
4: Well, some of the stuff is if we go back to the 70s with the Symbionese Liberation Army and their shootouts with uh, with law enforcement, and there's been a, unfortunately on both sides, there's been a, an action and a reaction.
0: Mm, Heck, you go okay. all the way back
4: to the 30s in the Prohibition era. And then the Tommy guns and all the things that the, that the organized crime was using when they were running their alcohol and tobacco and all right. these things. So in this in this uh back and forth between both sides, law enforcement and the criminal side, one side goes up, the other side in response goes up. But take mm-hmm. it to um probably uh North Hollywood, the, the incident shootout. Remember that one? The bank robbers?
0: No. Oh yes. Yeah. I thought that was Burbank, but was it North Hollywood?
4: Is it North Hollywood, I believe. Picture that we were describing a while ago. Look at
7: the Ford Explorer. Its windows are already uh, blown out. This is the gunman after he came out of the bank. This is the first of two gunmen that shot it out with police. And we're showing you this again to give you an idea of the type of firefight that took place about 9.50 this morning. About 50 minutes after these bank robbers were confronted. Now this is the gunman. He's crouching. He starts to walk away almost nonchalantly. But look at him with his AK-47. Now he's starting to open up. Police. Police he's firing at police who are across the street in a parking lot now he's walking this is what makes me think he had body armor on because this is a guy who is almost nonchalant in the way he's walking around Very in casual. that parking lot
2: sort a, of clip of, a clip
7: full of bullets he just sets down now he's changing another clip pulls it out of what looks like an ammunition pack puts another clip in there and he's getting ready to do the same thing over again now you see the white car the white car is the getaway car here is another pack over in, a, in the uh, handicapped parking in the bank. We don't know what was in there, but he comes out shooting across the top of the car. The, see the firing from inside the car? That's the second gunman. He throws something out. They're using this getaway car as cover as they fire at police who are, who are all taking cover across the street.
2: As well as residents and people who happen to be Everybody. shopping in the area to hit the ground. It, we
7: heard uh, one of the people in the bank or who was just entering the bank when this was taking place, people were still lining up at the ATM machines when this was beginning to take place. I, I presume by this time they had all taken cover. But now he starts to try to get in. It's almost as if are, they are they're firing, but they're lost. They don't know what to do. And now the getaway car with the one gunman inside starts to leave. Here's the second gunman. He's on foot. Perhaps they feel that they have a better chance if the gunman drives and the other gunman provides tactical cover. This is almost a military type of tactical situation. These guys act as if they have had military training. I only say that because if you're in the car, you're vulnerable. If somebody's walking along the side of the car using the car as cover and firing as he is, it keeps the heads down of police across the street. Yeah, it
4: was LAPD handles. It was not Burbank. And, uh... I think one guy's name was Matasariano or something like that. There, I think it was like 94, 95. Okay. But that, and that played out across the entire country. You had two guys heavily armed with fully automatic assault weapons, body armor, helmets, everything. And they, you know, they kept uh, law enforcement at bay for like an hour. And right. And it was in broad daylight and it was broadcast around the world. and. Yeah. That told a lot of law enforcement agencies, hey, you know what, we need to arm ourselves and be prepared to counter a threat like that. It okay. also told, unfortunately, the criminal element that, hey, if we get our hands on that, we can keep them at bay. So you True have. that, it.
0: but why? Let me ask you a question. Why are they using these same tactics, though, for protests that are nonviolent displays? This, to me, seems a little bit too much. Well, some. So to speak.
4: This is where. Um, it would probably be best to to remember that you got eight, roughly eighteen thousand agencies in the country. They're law enforcement, and mm-hmm. you have a r- right about nine hundred thousand cops. They're all trained differently. They have different right. tactics, different policies. And we've seen, for example, at Ferguson, the protests after the the shooting. They probably mm-hmm. went over the top with too much militarization, and then you saw yeah, other I ones.
0: Think
4: so. In fact, the uh, under McDonald, uh, what they call the May Day riot in, uh, I think it was MacArthur Park.
3: The Los Angeles Police Department is coming under increasing criticism for violently crushing a largely peaceful immigrant rights march on Tuesday. Police with riot guns fired 240 rounds, shot tear gas, and club protesters and journalists gathered in MacArthur Park. At least 10 people were injured, including seven journalists. Pedro Seft was broadcasting live for Spanish language television network Telemundo when police knocked over his monitors and lights and hit his staff with batons Sefkik told the Los Angeles Times a police officer grabbed one of his cameras and threw it more than 15 feet to the ground he said police pointed a riot gun at his face hit him with a baton and forced him out of the park Patricia Nazario of the public radio station KPCC was also injured on Wednesday Nazario described to listeners what happened to her the cop jammed me in my ribs with his billy club and so I turned around square looking at him. I had my, my press pass on, I had my mic flag in my hand, my notepad and my pen. And I said, why did you hit me? I'm a reporter. And he said, move. And I said, I am moving. Why did you hit me? I'm a reporter. And he hit me again harder that time and I fell. Others assaulted included four employees of KVEA-TV, Channel 52, and a reporter for the public radio station KPCC hit by a police baton. Christina Gonzalez, a reporter for the Fox affiliate KTTV, uh, Channel 11, suffered a bruised shoulder after she was shoved to the ground. Her camera operator suffered a broken wrist. The incident was caught on tape.
4: Mm -hmm. And Or you can go back to 92 and the L.A. riots where cops chose not to do anything and they let a riot spin yeah. out of control.
0: That's right. That did spin so you, out of control.
4: You can go too far, or you can go too little, and you run a danger. So mm-hmm. that, the trick fair. is to get it just right, where you have to permit people to exercise their First Amendment rights to protest, but they have to make sure that it's done in a way that's not going to jeopardize anyone's safety. Right. And that's a delicate balance, and it ca- it takes seasoned people who know what they're doing, well trained. Uh, that's right, deputies or, or, or police, and a lot of discipline on the line when you're actually handling these protests. And just by default, ourselves on the Sheriff's Department, LAPD, because of the sheer volume of things that we've been doing, we're getting better at it. We have mm-hmm. uh, an ERT team, emergency response team, that actually handles riots and protesters, but the more sophisticated varieties where people chain themselves okay. across something and they will their arms. Right. So we... We have specialized units that are prepared to to do these things, but a lot of it starts with just talking to people. Hey, what do you guys want to do? Okay. You want to protest? Good. Uh, can we just make sure we don't interfere with the traffic or you stay on the, on the sidewalk and keep it civil? And you you, you start with a good dialogue with the people that are protesting. Mm -hmm. You want to let them know that, you know, you're there to support them. You're not there opposing them because they're protesting. That's their right. But we just want to right. make sure no one gets hurt in the process,
0: right? And it seems to me that's the difference between um, the things you're talking about in Ferguson. They didn't come with that attitude. They came with the attitude, "No, we're going to smack you guys around." That was so. That was obvious. And I think I think you're right. If you come, if the police officer comes forward with this idea, I'm going to protect your first amendment rights. I'm not here to beat you up or to shut you down or to argue with you. But please respect, you know, the civility of everybody else around you and and don't destroy property, et cetera. You know, there needs to be that dialogue, and that's why I think community police, policing makes much more sense in the in the long term as far as um, how we solve a lot of these problems. I'll
4: give you a good so, example of that. 1992 okay. riots, I was a deputy assigned to East L.A., and uh, I was sent to the corner of Whittier Boulevard and Ford with a, a partner of mine, and there was reports of juvies smashing windows and trying to light fires. Oh, boy. And we got there. At this point, the fires had already started in, in south-central L.A., and it was basically progressing eastward and northward. And we found right. the kids. We proned them out, and we told them, what are you guys doing here? You burn this down. This is where your parents go shopping. Yeah. This is where some of you folks work. What's going to happen if this is all burned down? And uh, we actually, they kind of looked at each other and said, Yeah, you're right. And we let them go, and guess what? It stopped <laughs> <They'd> there. stopped. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, one of those odd moments in history where you go, oh, that was different.
0: That was but at up. the
4: point, we had about we had about 40 people detained right there in the middle of the street on Ford and Whittier Boulevard. And uh, at that point in time, at least, we were able to turn the tide away.
0: Right. No, that's great. I, I know one of the things you talk about, on your platform is that you have a poorly staffed agency at this point. So when you say poorly staffed, are we talking about the quality of recruits, meaning uh, you're looking for a specific personality, specific skill set, those types of things, or are you poorly staffed as far as not having enough money to uh, hire adequately, or is there another issue at play?
4: Well, we're we're understaffed by about 1200 based on our current budget that's, levels.
0: Wow, that's is, a uh, lot.
4: That's a massive amount, and when you put it into into the context of the fact that we're the least or the most understaffed police agency in the entire country, it wow. gets even worse. Our, the I think I I don't know if I talked to you in that meeting that our per capita cops or deputies per one thousand uh, citizens we're at one point one for
0: 1,000, and the national average is 2.5. Oh, LEPD
4: wow. is okay. at 2.2, 2, and that tells you how understaffed we are. So on top of that, we're structurally understaffed, and then we're understaffed based on our current budget levels. It mm-hmm. makes it, you know, it's like adding insult to injury, and that mm-hmm. prevents us from being able to train our personnel properly, give them proper relief so they, you know, not stressed out working too much overtime spending time away from their families and creating a lot of stress that is unnecessary and is counterproductive to working and serving mm. the community.
0: What is causing that? Are you, are, do you just not have a lot of applicants? Would raising the pay be more effective? What's...
4: Well, well, there's challenges throughout the entire country with attracting people to this line of work. You have a right. booming economy. We have unemployment's hovering around 4%, and that means there's a lot of jobs available, for kids of the age that we would recruit into law enforcement. So they have choices.
0: Mm. And
4: on top of that, you have a lot of negative perceptions about cops because now the increase in social media and and public awareness about use of force cases and police misconduct. So it's less popular as a career choice. But Mm -hmm. set all that aside, everyone is facing that same problem. But then you Mm -hmm. have a, then you have a failing sheriff with morale at yeah. rock bottom, and he does not care or make any right. steps to fix the problems that are within his control. And guess what? You have a, a double whammy. So everyone mm-hmm. has an issue, and we have twice the set of issues because of McDonald.
0: Right, and so let's talk for a second about the difference between the Sheriff's Department and the Los Angeles Police Department, because I know there's a lot of confusion out with the general population. What are your two different separate mandates?
4: Well, we both have the mandate to serve as a basic police, uh, provide basic law enforcement services for our respective jurisdictions, LAPD being the city of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. LA Sheriff's, their standard jurisdiction according to the the state constitution is all the unincorporated areas of the County of Los Angeles. Right. And then on top of that, we provide contract law enforcement services to 42 cities that are incorporated cities within LA County. And those are places like Bellflower, Cudahy Lakewood, Norwalk, you know, the list goes to Diamond Bar, the list goes on and on. Right. So, Our uh, population of the areas that we provide basic law enforcement services is about 2.6 million people. LAPD has 3.6 million, but their jurisdiction is only about 400-odd square miles. Ours is spread out over 4,000 square miles. Okay. So that's part of the challenge and why we're so understaffed and so dispersed.
0: No, right, because the unincorporated areas in the county, like Altadena, you know, these are very, you're right, it's, it's spread out across a very large geographical area. And so the LAPD never goes into these areas, correct?
4: No, their, their okay. responsibility ends at their state limits. Only in the okay. case of a, an emergency where there's a mutual aid request, then you'll see okay. agencies helping out each other.
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Black Black Lives Matters, uh, They have really been uh, targeting the LAPD for a lot of stuff. I know we had recently. I think about two weeks ago, we had a situation where the district attorney's office uh, didn't prosecute a police officer that was accused of shooting somebody in the back. And you, this was a unique situation, in given that the video uh, supported what what had happened. His fellow officer that was with him. Said that he was lying. Even Charlie Beck agreed that this guy should have been prosecuted. So, but he wasn't. Um, it seems to me that the LAPD has had far more problems than the Sheriff's Department has when it comes to situations like this. Would you say that that's true?
4: It, you know, it it comes and goes because I guarantee okay. you. Just you look at the historical pattern. They're in the spotlight for the wrong reasons. And then it's going to shift to us, and we'll be in the spotlight for the wrong reasons. And they go, thank God, and then it'll go back to them. It's been back and forth throughout my entire career, so it doesn't surprise me. In your
0: personal, it doesn't surprise you. In your personal dealings, though, inside the uh, agency, have you seen a lot of racism amongst uh, fellow officers? Has that been something that you think is a continuing problem?
4: Well, all the areas that I've worked has been very, uh, you know, very strong minority populations,
0: Mm -hmm. and I
4: haven't worked in an area. That, that would be you would at least think it'd be more prevalent. Maybe like for example right. at Lancaster, Palmdale or the far flung areas of the county. But yeah. um I haven't I haven't seen evidence of that personally. I've seen okay. uh probably lack of training and misunderstanding is probably the our biggest challenge where some especially young deputies might believe that oh you have to approach people and and when they do traffic stops a certain way if you're in say Compton versus Lost Hill, and I said, no, you do the same in both.
0: No. Yeah, exactly.
4: And that's an issue of training and just misperception, but thankfully... We have very good training staff
2: that can- Question of race? The L.A. County Sheriff's Department will update its anti-bias training as part of a settlement over the arrest of 33 black college students. The American Civil Liberties Union announced the agreement today. It resolves a claim brought against the department when deputies stopped and searched students during an incident at L.A. Trade Tech College. That was back in 2007. The sheriff's spokesman says a review board found that the deputies did not engage in racial profiling, but says the sheriff is always looking for ways to improve training.
4: Well, we were—we did have a consent decree up in the in the Antelope Valley and it had to do with racial profiling. Unfortunately, we had uh, mismanagement and bad leadership up there. And so what year uh, was that? Recently. Yeah, that was yeah that was recently, and it was uh, report, reported pretty well in the news.
8: The 2015 agreement came after federal investigators found sheriff's deputies engaged in misconduct that included unreasonable force and stops that appeared motivated by racial bias. McDonnell agreed to reforms, including better training, a new policy on use of force and steps to prevent discriminatory conduct. He says things are going well.
4: We've made great strides. Uh, very proud of the work that's been done in the Antelope Valley.
8: McDonald was the assistant chief of the LAPD when the feds compelled reforms there more than a decade ago, forcing the department to divert millions of dollars.
4: When I look at the consent decrees as vehicles for change, it was very onerous, but it created change that was beneficial long term to the organization.
8: Sheriff McDonald says he expects his department to be in full compliance with the Antelope Valley Agreement within two years. Covering public safety, I'm Frank
4: Stoltz. And uh, there was a consent decree, and um, one of the problematic uh, executives or managers at the time is now one of McDonald's assistant sheriffs. Mm. Hence, I go back That's to the good. problems with uh, with uh, Mister McDonald. He just could not figure out the organization. He surrounded himself with the wrong set of people who steered him the same way that Baca and Tanaka did, and somehow they think that uh, they're the answer. No, they're actually the problem.
0: Right. So it seems to me that Jim McDonald didn't replace a lot of the same leadership that were causing problems under Baca. Is that true?
4: No, he kept them. Not only did he keep them, he allowed them to recruit and promote their peers of lower rank who were also campaign contributors to Paul Tanaka.
0: So how can you so, campaign as a reformer if that's what he's doing? That's just completely opposite.
4: Well, it uh, it's a mystery to everyone how he claims uh, to be a reformer when he hasn't reformed anything. What he's done is... for Let me give a, a good example. Bach had the Office of Independent Review with Michael Janako. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be this some degree of oversight or independent uh, review of department activities it was all a fake of the facade to give the aura mm-hmm. of oversight when actually they were the exact opposite because I took mm-hmm. to Mike Janaco and to Diane Turan from that office of independent review the entire pay to play scheme and then the the test cheating scandal that happened back in oh three and oh mm-hmm. four with all the hard evidence I gave it to them and they said oh thank you we'll look into it and that was it. They just buried it.
0: So what was the test cheating scandal? Let's talk a little bit about that.
4: This was in two thousand three when uh, Tanaka had just been promoted to the rank of of uh, division chief, and he was assigned to the Advent Services Division, which unfortunately uh, contained personnel administration and uh, testing mm-hmm. unit. Okay. He had basically, you put the fox in charge of the chicken coop, Mm
0: -hmm.
4: and he did everything he could to to promote and to prevent or block the promotion of his rivals and to promote his campaign contributors. He went so far as to assign his loyal sergeants to work at personnel and to study full-time for the lieutenant's exam, while well, everybody else was actually doing their jobs, so the taxpayers okay. got defrauded because they were paying for yeah. people to study for their own advancement, whereas people sure. like me and all my peers were out there in the field just doing the Lord's work. Right. And
0: that's crazy. And
4: that's, I call that the first generation of Tanaka clans, Tanaka clones. Mm-hmm.
0: Tanaka clones. <laughs> yeah. That's good.
4: But because they continue, they have the same value set, the same practices they engage in, and now McDonald has given them the power and the authority to continue doing the same thing. And that that first generation, they're now right. in the executive ranks of McDonald.
0: Right. They right. have never
4: changed. It's the same people. Right. Which
0: means, yeah, which means the things that need to get done aren't getting done. Uh, exactly. How would you incorporate how would you incorporate meaningful civilian oversight into the department? What would that look like?
4: Well, you can't have complete oversight only because there's a constitutional limitation because the office of sheriff is a constitutional office.
0: Any change to that relationship with the
4: department has to be done by changing the state constitution. Okay. The office of sheriff itself, though, does have, and I know Sherman Block was fond of this, of saying that he has the ultimate oversight. He can get fired by the the voters of LA County. That's true. However, he's being a little disingenuous because he knew the political establishment was circling the wagons, and it was virtually impossible for a rival to uh To make an effective challenge right and uh the only reason he lost basically because he started his health started falling apart, he lost touch and he held onto the his finger on the trigger for far too long, and along came Bach and took advantage of it. Mhm had he been younger and in better health, we'd still have block today,
0: which scares me actually I, but I just, now... yeah, he was
4: <laughs> yeah, I know, but now bad. with social media. And then a little more awareness and more uh engaged uh voting population now incumbents can't take anything for granted anymore. there's That's a lot right. w- a lot more ways to get information out to the voting public, and people are informed through social media and That's right. Word spreads like wildfire whereas before if the Times didn't report it and you didn't get something in the mail, it didn't exist.
0: That's right. Well, you know, and I think that was been has been the equal the great equalizing factor with uh, cases of police brutality is camera phones and the like. People, I I don't think that there's been an increase of these situations at all. I just think there's more awareness because we're now seeing it firsthand as it happens. You know what I'm saying? That's,
4: and that is that is one of the problems of perception is that those right. incidents that are bad happen very very rarely because you have to take into account the millions of contacts that cops make with civilians every day. And they're all successful. And that includes making contact with people that are engaged in felony activity, violent felony activity, and they still manage to get detained, handcuffed, and arrested without incident.
0: So we have to find a way, I think, uh, to reform our police departments where the the ones that are guilty of doing these things are are pulled out of those are pulled out of their uh jobs because they they don't respect their jobs. If this is how they're behaving. They don't belong in that position. They they're not they don't have respect for what's been placed at their hands and that's the trust of the American po- population. No, and I definitely. thought I really that's why I I'm very disappointed by Lacey, uh the DA not prosecuting this guy for this reason. I'm going to trust
4: Lace. the judgment of Charlie Beck if he thought that there was enough to go forward with a with a prosecution. He thought there
0: was, yeah yeah and i'm
4: I'm not familiar with uh with the statements of his partners at the time, but if they were also in agreement that he shouldn't have done what he'd done and they
2: were in agreement well he's been accused of protecting fellow officers, but not this time. The LAPD's chief breaks tradition by recommending criminal charges against one of his own following a deadly shooting in Venice. Gil Reyes has more Gil.
8: Well, Yana, as of deadline time for the story, L.A. County D.A. Jackie Lacey has not filed criminal charges against the officer who gunned down a homeless man here in Venice back in May. But one thing is for sure, LAPD Chief Charlie Beck, in what many consider to be an unexpected move, is recommending criminal charges against that officer. Today we got reaction from area residents. I wish he goes to jail for a long time. I think he should definitely be doing some time. Venice residents we spoke to all agree. They believe the police shooting of Brendan Glenn, an unarmed homeless man, was not justified. And in a rare admission, the LAPD's chief feels the same way.
5: It's important that the chief of police not only uh, stand up for the department when it's right, which is the vast majority of the time, uh, but also... uh, uh, be forthright when uh, when he sees something that he believes is wrong.
8: For the first time in his six-year to, uh, tenure, Jesus Chief Charlie be Beck you know, is pushing for criminal to, uh, charges uh, against a fellow officer uh, yeah. in a fatal on-duty shooting. Officer Clifford Proctor says he shot Glenn near the Venice boardwalk when he reached for an officer's gun during an altercation. But Chief Beck says surveillance video and witness testimony rule out that story. Residents say they hope the chief's recommendation will help expose Venice's so-called bad cops.
2: Maybe they'll look at this area again and uh, see who they have on their force around here, get some better officers in the area.
8: People we spoke to complain of constant alleged police brutality, particularly against the homeless. Civil rights groups have accused Beck of protecting cops from punishment, most notably when he cleared two officers in the 2014 shooting of Azel Ford, an unarmed black man. The chief says his decisions regarding officers are based on evidence.
5: And not only willing to stand up for our folks uh, when we believe in them, but also when we recognize uh, a criminal act.
8: Glenn was among 21 people fatally shot by LAPD in 2015, a 52% increase from the previous year. In Venice, Gil Reyes for LA This Week.
2: Though the case advances to the LA County DA's office, prosecutors there have not filed criminal charges against a law enforcement officer in 15 years.
4: The leader of the organization says that's not acceptable. He should be held accountable at a minimum I think Lacey had the obligation to at least pre- present a, uh, a case for uh, either get and panel a grand jury and have the grand exactly. jury decide to make an indictment or in her life, but at least take it out of her hands and put in the hands of the public for that. Yeah,
0: to do nothing. To do nothing is just so mind-numbing to me. This is failing our justice system, and it's certainly not helping the good cops. Because yeah, every no, but time one of these bad cops get away with something like this, you know, in the public mind, it's like, oh, cops are all bad. They just go to that place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we
4: lose, we lose perspective when these things happen exactly. because, like you said, the amplification of social media and they're isolated. And as sheriff, I have to walk a fine line between holding people accountable for what they do but supporting what they're mm-hmm. doing at the same time. I can't go too far one way or the other. I'm going to lose one audience or the other. So I have to walk that fine line. McDonald never walked that fine line. No,
0: he thought everything no. was
4: accountability, but he was only doing it for PR purposes. To show right. the press, you know, a pile of, you know, of, uh, corpse, right. uh, career corpses. Look, I fired all these people. I relieved all these people of duty. Therefore, I must be doing my job. Literally, that's
0: it, it, Well, he's not doing his job if if he does that, and then there's no actual change in the culture. That's kind of a ridiculous argument. Well, not only but, that,
4: all he did is you know? breed resentment and doubt among his own employees to say, "Well, maybe I shouldn't do anything at all. I'll just sit here, keep the window rolled up, and if the my computer says go to a call, I'll go to a call, but I'm not going to stick my neck out anymore."
6: Yeah,
0: that's, that's right. That's it. right. I think the people need to see it come from within the departments. I think they need to see the police themselves um, sort of dealing with the bad seeds, so to speak, that exist in their environment, as opposed to ignoring them. I think that would recreate the trust that needs to well, have in would. the community.
4: In our department, we have an inspector general. Okay. Max Hunter is the name. And he's supposed to work. Uh, he works for the board of supervisors just like the Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Civilian Oversight uh, Commission reports to the Board of Supervisors. But um, they have to operate under whatever degree of cooperation McDonald cares to afford them. And sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. And uh, for my purposes, I like to view the Civilian Oversight Commission as the group of shareholders or stakeholders. They want to get Mm -hmm. their opinions before I implement any policy, any practice, any uh, program, because I want to get their input. That is what they should at least serve that function. And then the Inspector General should be used for the individual cases. So the commission for the aggregate and for the individual where there's a lot of issues of um, records that are not available for the public because of um, the Peace Officers' Bill of right, for example, You can't release, and a lot of laws that govern, you can't release uh, employee records to the public. But someone within the organization, like the inspector general, give him the latitude to review the entire thing Mm. and then remove the information that can't be released and then at least present Mm -hmm. information to the sheriff, to the oversight commission, saying, okay, this is what happened, this is what went good, this is what went wrong, this is what the things I recommend that we need to fix, that information would be a good starting point. But McDonald doesn't use him for that purpose. He's. Uh,
0: and you're right. That is a missed opportunity because this is exactly what I'm trying to get at. If you have an internal mechanism, mechanism that deals with the police that have done something wrong and you take action, you've just rebuilt trust.
4: Let me, uh, does that make sense? Let me, oh, no, it does. Perfect. Let me kick it up a notch to, uh, to uh, public administration on, on theory. And okay. there's a, a whole branch of study within public administration talked about talks about organizational development. And one of the chief proponents is an author named Chris Argyris. And he talks mm. about how organizations typically tend to react to two things, either embarrassment or threat. And when they kind of confront it with either one, they generate what are called organizational defensive routines where they try to either okay. bypass the problem, cover it up, and then what happens when they're doing these things, they're not learning from what went bad. So you right. have uh, what they call single-loop learning, where you have okay. a problem, you have a response, the problem continues, the response is the same and nothing changes. And then there's a higher level of what's called a, for learning organization, you have double-loop learning, where you have a problem, a reaction, a correction, and then now we're in a new state where we might have changed the problem. So we're adapting mm-hmm. to new information, and we're seeking to learn from it. Our organization lacks the capacity to detect problems because for for McDonald and for his corrupt administrative staff, problems and the corruption are things that have to be concealed from the public. <laughs> they have to be hidden. I'll give you a case. All right, in front of mm-hmm. me, I have the year in review, 2015, big glossy mm-hmm. publication Of course, the information in it is pretty sparse, but the one that's pretty condemning Mm -hmm. is it shows that under McDonald's, crime went up in all categories. This is 2015, and they've been doing this year in review for the last probably 40 years. Comes 2016, he decides that the numbers don't look too good, so he just quit making the year in review.
0: And in
4: 2017, he thought he was going to try to bamboozle it, and no, the numbers were cooked, and they didn't add up, so he didn't release year 2017 either. Hmm. So he's basically blanking out all the statistical information that would point to his uh, horrific performance as sheriff.
0: Right, right. So what is causing that increase in crime?
4: You have the evolu- evolving IT technology that is keeps expanding the ability of bad guys to basically rip off the good guy, and there's hmm. no end in sight to that. And when we got one no, thing figured no, out, yeah. three more pop up. Look at now—you have right. in Florida, you had gangsters in a hotel room cranking out fake uh, taxes and swindling, oh. swindling off the IRS <laughs> and the individual tax holder with identity theft.
0: You're kidding me. Yeah, that was this, this was last year. Wow.
4: This is yeah, I think uh, two years ago, and each pop was so averaging the- about two thousand dollars. So it was cheaper and less wow. risky to do identity theft in the comfort of your hotel room with your printer and everything, than to go out there and rob a bank for the same amount of money. Well that's
0: exactly right. Yeah, white collar crime is probably something that's increased. And it's you know, I'd like to see some convictions of the banksters at the high end level too, but that doesn't seem to ever happen. Uh, they, uh, so-
4: I know there's a lot of uh lot of the things in between that protect them from being held accountable.
0: Oh yeah, it's crazy. It's just ridiculous. I mean, we would rather jail a pot smoker. Well, maybe not now, but previously jail a pot smoker for twenty five years than bust a guy that stole three million dollars from some innocent person. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem proportional as far as crime is mm-hmm. concerned. Um so if Alex, so if uh anybody wants to donate to your campaign, I wanna make sure that they know where to go. I think um I think you're gonna get a lot of support and interest out there because we have been so desperately needing someone like you to run so if people want to give to your campaign where do they go
4: oh, you go to my website uh, www.alexvillanueva.org. that's v i l l a n u e v a there's a tab for donate there's a tab to volunteer there's tabs for everything i think my twitter is alex for sheriff with the the number 4 alex for sheriff instagram as well and facebook Alex for Sheriff is also Instagram. And then Facebook is Alex Villanueva for Sheriff. Again, the four is the number four.